podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello again. Yes, I'm back already. I'm Chris Medland, an F1 journalist and broadcaster, and this is the podcast that is not a podcast podcast. It has been a busy time in Formula One, but certain things have been completely overtaken by issues in the wider world that really do matter, and it would be ignorant of me or any of us to say that they have nothing to do with the sport. Lewis Hamilton has been speaking out about racial injustice and he stands out as the only black driver in the sport's history. But when you look up and down the F1 paddock, he's very much in the minority when he's outside of the car too. Now, while the paddock is home to a wide range of nationalities, ethnicities and groups, some are clearly underrepresented. For example, while there are significant numbers of women in broadcasting, hospitality or even public relations, they make up only a tiny percentage of the media centre or the race teams. And that's just one example of underrepresentation. It's not a problem that's being dismissed, but it isn't the dominant discussion of right now. Just because someone is saying black lives matter doesn't mean they are not saying all lives matter. But it means if you encompass all lives together at the moment, some of them seem to be being valued more than others. And it extends far beyond police brutality. That might be the focal point right now that we hope will lead to change. But some of those lives are facing significant disadvantages to get to where they want to be in this world. And it clearly extends to F1. I can't reach double figures when I think of the number of black people who are regularly attending races in the paddock, with the area I personally most regularly work in, the media centre, somewhere where I could count them on one hand. Sam Collins is one of those, and he would normally be on this podcast to talk about some extremely interesting technical aspects, some cool stories from Japan, and just to take the piss out of me for not being a tech journalist and therefore only interested in a car's livery. But his story is an even more important one to tell right now, given what's going on in the world. And while we'll soon descend into chatting rubbish like I do with everyone on this show, first, it might be time for me to learn a few harsh truths about the industry I work into. Sam, thanks very much for finding a window in your weekend to talk to me. Um, Now, I know you're busy and we are going to talk about some serious topics uh, on this podcast, but you don't get away with anything. So, do you have a drink with you? I do. It is a a Brewdog Punk IPA. Strong choice. Uh, And I will admit that I only had a cup of tea. And when I saw that you had a can of beer, I ran down and got mine. Because this is a bit earlier than I'm normally doing them. But um, I just just don't know what my excuse really was. I think it's because the weather's gone bad and I'm just not outside in the sun thinking I need a cold beer. It, it's well, we've got a massive wet, thunderstorm, so. massive thunderstorm here, so you might hear it in a minute because it's been popping and banging all like. I'm all for that. It's some uh, hitching atmosphere, is that? It is some real hitch, hitching atmosphere right now, yeah. Right. Um, so, what's got you so busy this weekend? Tell everyone. Oh, we've got oh, it's, it's some real motor racing this weekend, which is which is unusual at the moment. But we've got IndyCar in Texas. We've got NASCAR in Atlanta, and that's Xfinity and Cup this weekend. So that's fantastic to watch. And I'm still doing this massive archive project for one of the Japanese magazines, trying to catalogue my 30 most memorable motor races in my career, which as a, as a writer and in every other role I've had. And that is quite a project. When you try and think about what you were doing in 2002 and 2003, it, it, it takes some mental power. Yeah, no, no one's going to understand this reference, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up anyway, because they can't see you, because I only put this out as an audio pod. Um, but we're on Zoom. And something that people always get wrong is that you're a lot older than you look, aren't you? Oh, no, I'm only 22. <laughs> <laughs> you genuinely look about 22. I know, I get that a lot. Um, yeah, my, my, my first sort of season in motor racing doing anything of any real note was 1997 with Williams. 
Um, so Villeneuve and Frenson as drivers, and I did a bit. I did a quick stint in the electronics department, making wing mirrors and sensors mostly. And wow. then went to university, started racing cars. I raced. I think I drove my first motor race in '99. I think it was. Um, I was, was ten then. Fiesta. <laughs> I was in a Ford Fiesta. Yeah, you were ten. <laughs> I was racing in the twentieth century. <laughs> yeah, so I've been but, around a little bit. I've been around longer than people think. Yeah, exactly. And uh, how many of this? So this project you've got thirty um, like stand-up races. How many of them are you driving? I bet you uh, want to make so all thirty. Far, so far, only two. Oh. So far, there might be a third one in there. Um, might be my first ever motor race. I think I might do. Uh, it's rather embarrassing. I ran over my own bodywork in the scrutineering bay. Um, <laughs> spent the next next sort of ten <laughs> ten minutes living it, trying trying to get over the embarrassment, and then the next two hours trying to take the whole car back together. Oh mate, that is an absolute nightmare. Um, I, I mean, yeah, there's some serious topics we're going to get onto um, probably about now. But uh, I'm thinking if if you did have difficulties early on in your career, I think it's because you were running over bodywork rather than anything else. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely true. That that was that was that was that was entirely me. There was, <laughs> there was no, though I could blame the mechanics for putting the bodywork in front of the car, and and then the scrutineer for telling me to drive forwards when there was bodywork in front of the car. So yeah, and, that, you, yeah, that, and that, you couldn't see that's it. Clearly, not my fault. <laughs> Fair, great. You've got the racing driver excuses. Yeah, um, I do, yeah. So so yeah, so you've been in the sport a long time. Um, a long time. You are old. Um, but yeah, how how did you get into it? What sort of ignited your passion for racing and and because it's not just Formula One, is it? You're all motorsport. No, I'm all motorsport. I'm all motorsport. I mean, my 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 first passion was really rallying, not not motor racing at all. And I you know, I grew up in a place called Crystal Palace in South London. And for those who don't know their motorsport history, Crystal Palace was home to a big motor racing circuit, which closed I think in 1973. But I grew up within sight of the sort of the track and used to walk up there and wonder what if this was still a racetrack. I learned to ride my bike around the park and stuff where it is there. And of course, like everybody, I grew up in the sort of 80s and 90s watching watching motor racing on television, watching Formula One, Murray Walker shouting about things and brilliant live Top Gear rally reports on BBC Two during the RAC rally where you got to watch, you know, these fantastic, like Gwyneth Evans in F2 kit cars and stuff like that. Absolutely fantastic motorsport. So yeah, I, I completely fell in love with, with, with motor racing at a really young age. So rather than when I was at school, rather than um, do what everybody else did, um, I ended up, as I, say, as I say, going to Williams and doing work experience there and everybody else was working in their dad's factory or the shop down the road and I was doing Formula One. So I was a little bit odd from that point of view. Um, I started doing a bit of karting around that point as well. And then, um, yeah, then rather than go to college and do A-levels, I went off and did an engineering diploma and built my first race car. And actually my first as, rally car at the same time. As you do. Nice, easy project. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it was fun. And that was the car I sort of decided to run over bits of um, in the scrutineering bay at Lydon Hill. Sensible. I, yeah, I might change the topic of this podcast, actually, to sort of idiotic driving i think that could be <laughs> i could uh, feel i could feel many podcasts about <laughs> <me>. <laughs> um well let's let's start with karting though um because that's something that i think will relate to a lot of people in terms of we see lewis hamilton talk about his experience as he came up through the ranks and i think he put a clip up recently or, or someone found an old clip of him talking as a 10 or 11 year old about racism and getting 
racist abuse as a young carter because there were no other black people carting alongside him um, and that he just answered them on the track is how he said it then um, did you have similar experiences was it at the very least was it an uncomfortable situation in terms of that you were a minority there not, not when I was karting, no. Um, I, rather than doing what I call posh kart and expensive karting, which is what Lewis did and Anthony Davidson do, and they were racing at Rye House and Buckmore Park and those big tracks, I didn't have that sort of money. My parents, no interest in motor racing, so I was saving up my sort of lunch money from school dinners. I'd skip school, school like lunches, and my money would either go on a copy of Motorsport magazine or, or on a, you know, once a month, or I'd go in uh, or Motorsport News, and, and, then I, and then the rest would I'd save up so I could go to Streatham. And in Streatham, South East London, in the old bus garage, there was an indoor kart track run by Martin Howell, who was Gareth Howell's father, the old touring kart racer. And Gareth Howell, he's actually, I was actually at school with. Um, so I always used to get a little bit of extra time on the track because he was a mate. Um, so, we'd go, so I'd go down there and just drive the carts and just do karting and loved doing it. And it was, it was interesting because I'm pretty sure, now I'm not 100% certain about this, but I'm pretty sure I crashed into Lewis Hamilton on that kart track because he used to go there and there was a little kid, young, much younger than me, in a car and because obviously kids weigh nothing, just screaming down the street, but crashing into, kept on crashing into me. And I got in black flags and, he, and I'd, learned, I'd learned a few tricks by that point. You could wave your hands and complain, obviously, as you go past the the marshals and they blame the other person you know it's, 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 you still do it in karting now but it's you one day chris and um yeah we need to get you in a cart we, we do we do i'm getting a bit porky with this lockdown so i need to lose some weight for that but um the you know the, the, the this kid crashed into it and i'm sure because it was a young black kid and there are not as you say there were not many black kids around at that time streatham though obviously because of its location did have more non-white carters there were quite a few um there was a Kenyan guy I used to go karting with, Natalia Aiko. Um, there was the Fasta Rasta, he used to call himself. Um, he, he was on Top Gear when they did the competition for the fastest faith. There was a Rastafarian guy who lived in South London, taxi driver, but he used to come karting with us. Uh, Maxi Jazz, the guy, the, the musician, he was, he was down from time to time. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a monoculture as he perhaps would have found, Lewis would have found for sure at places like Buckmore Park, Rye House. And if you went to any of the other tracks, you know, PF and stuff like that, absolutely, you've been the only sort of darker skin face there. It was really, motor racing was not a diverse place back in the sort of the late 90s. Jason Watt was in F3000. That was about it, I think, for, for non-white faces. Yeah, so I think the first published bit of writing I did, um, and it wasn't, wasn't paid, it was just on the letters page of F1 Racing Magazine of all things. And they ran a story about the lack of black people in motor racing. And I wrote in and said, well, actually, the only black face I see at racetracks is my own. You know, mm -hmm. Or you see Lewis, Lewis Hamilton was still coming up through karting. He wasn't in cars at that point. And, you know, I was at Brands Hatch every weekend I could find or Lydon or going, going out doing club rallying and stuff at that point. And I just, I was, just was obsessed, completely, I'm still am actually, but completely obsessed with motorsport and just turning up at whenever and wherever I could for anything. Um, and yeah, it was, I was the only person there. I was the only one there, if you like, but mm. I didn't really notice it. I have to say, I didn't notice it early on, but there was no racism that I noticed, but then I was just some kid going to watch a motor race. No one cared. I was, I was invisible essentially. Yeah. D did you notice it further on as your career progressed and you started working in different yeah. categories and stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I built that first race car, it was, it was a college project, a Fiesta XR2 and um, we built it. 
as a, as a sister car to one that was being built for Triple C magazine, which is sadly no longer a thing. And we were running the BRSCC Ford Saloon Championship, which is modified, crazy modified Escort Cosworths and things like that. We had this little group N Fiesta, which could barely keep up with anything. Um, we kept on beating the students from Sonta University. And I remind those students who are now in Formula One who were in that team, we beat them a lot. Um, <laughs> it was interesting there because some of the people I was at college with didn't know any black people at all. Mm-hmm. And they'd grow, they grew up in, you know, South Croydon, Red Hill area, around that part of Surrey. And it really is a monoculture down there. There aren't, there aren't non-white, there are, there, are, there are only white faces down there. And yeah, there were quite a lot of comments at that point when I was at college. That was quite difficult. A lot of the kids, a lot of the kids in that class were just wanted to be normal garage mechanics. And by mm-hmm. doing, the, doing that course, they could qualify to just get a slightly higher pay, start, start a higher level rather than be a technician, they could be a mechanic or, you know, be, just be better qualified. I was doing it to learn about cars, but I was also doing extra maths. I was doing extra, set, you know, extra study modules so I could get enough to go to university, get enough points to go to university. So I did the full on engineering qualifications and they were essentially studying mechanics. So I was already a little bit different. I didn't make life easy for myself like that. You know, they all wanted modified Fords. I had a Volkswagen. Yeah, it was uh, it was one of those deals, but yeah, there were loads of comments there, and you can't, I kind of got used to it. I did kind of mm. get used to it. It wasn't nasty, but these weren't my best mates. Put it that way, you know, I didn't yeah. hang out with them much after college. A couple of guys I did. Um, one now works in Formula One as well, so he was a good mate. But the course was fantastic. Uh, it was East Surrey College, um, and I think they still do it. But they build the race cars, the students go and race them. Students drove them, and so I raced for the race for that season in I think '99. Finished third in the championship, more by nobody else turning turning up than than actual talent or ability. But the car was got the best prepared car, so I was quite pleased with that. And then after that, I went off to university, and that was a very different experience. Um, again, only non-white face in my year of two hundred engineering students. Um, there was there were four girls and one non-white person so it was really not a very diverse class but the people in that in that engineering class were really oh no no, that's not true there were two there was an indian guy as well he now works for lotus um but it was a top level group of people and loads of those guys i see you know when when the normal season is happening most loads of those guys i see every week every other weekend when we're at the track Mm -hmm. and great for information sources for the work i'm doing so I, i find out quite a lot from um from the guys I'm talking to. And those guys, there wasn't really much racism at, at, at university at all. I didn't really face any of that. And I don't remember experiencing any. But when I went out to go and do club rallies, so I was doing a lot of rallying at that time, I was definitely, you know, you walk in the room to sign on and people are looking at you. You know, they, you're like, they're like, who the fuck is this sitting here? and like what is this guy doing and then they see the Volkswagen they see I'm actually doing quite well in the championship we're quite high up in the points and but even though there was one guy he was in the same motor club as me and I won't name it or him but he was outrageously racist like I'd hear comments like oh you know I was sitting waiting to go into a committee meeting for that motor club and he, he was, I was sitting outside and he just walked in and just went, oh, I didn't realise you were sat in your car. I couldn't see you until you smiled. And, you know, yeah. he was saying that. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. And, yeah. then, and then he was, 
there was another time he'd talk about this is in Kent. He'd talk about anyone who wasn't white as being an illegal. Oh. You know. But at the same time, this guy who was outrageously racist would let me have all of his old second-hand spare parts because he ran the same type of Volkswagen I did. So it was a little bit of a funny thing. So it was racist, but it didn't... It, it was maybe what they thought was acceptable banter. Mm. And when you're the only guy there, you sort of just have to accept it. You couldn't, you couldn't rail back at that point against that sort of comments because you just get ostracised. And also, I needed those those slick tires i needed those spare wheels i needed the you know that those those bits that he thought weren't just weren't perfect so he gives them to me and i fiddle around with them and get them going again you know so yeah. do you th- i was gonna say do you think the lack of um other black faces there actually then meant that there was no sort of learning and there was no sort of understanding and that because and it still is it there's such a minority that people just haven't quite understood no that's not okay because there is there is nobody almost to tell them they're not facing it that often yeah i think there's a lot of that and i think a lot of that is still a long way to go back then at the time just sort of around when i was just finishing university or at university um just towards the end of university i worked out i can't remember how i worked it out but i think i went through every club and looked for people it was the early days of the internet and stuff and I think I calculated that in British motorsport, there were five black people in total. Across all sorts of roles? Across everything. So from, from the 30,000 competition license holders, plus the teams, the engineers, the mechanics, people like that, there were five black people in British motorsport, of which I was one. Yeah. And um, I remember there were two people who got really interested in that fact when it came out. One was working at the MSA at the time, and the, which is now Motorsport UK. And I've completely forgotten his name. But he was curious about how, what, he, you know, asked me to write a report, like, why are there so few black people in motor racing? What can we do to increase participation? What are the issues here? Because they were worried there was real racism. And at that point, I think the racism was a little bit of a different sort. It was more the banter style. It wasn't didn't hold you back I don't think I didn't feel feel held held back the person who was really interesting on it was Jonathan Palmer Mm -hmm. who at the time had just taken on Brands Hatch circuits yeah and he was redoing Brands Hatch and he wanted to build up spectator numbers at Brands Hatch circuit so he was you know I was there all the time so he came up to me and he asked me about it and he asked me how can we get more black people and people from the inner city which is only 20 minutes from from Brands Hatch paddock you know you're in the centre of London, you're in Deptford, you're in Crayford, you're in Bromley, Beckenham, Crystal Palace. Why are those people not coming out to the track? It's a good day out. They, these, and he said, I know black guys are interested in cars because I see the cars, all you lot drive. You know, you're into it. And I said, yes, black people are into motor racing. Uh, but it's just not advertised to us. So at that point, Jonathan Palmer and Motorsport Vision started placing adverts for motor racing on public transport, in pubs, um, you know, you see the posters on bus stops and stuff around that bit of South London. They started to promote motor racing outside of their traditional little bubble. And I think that started to make a bit of a difference, whether it was just Jonathan Palmer and, you know, Lewis Hamilton, obviously, at that point was becoming a little bit more known. He hadn't got to Formula One, but he was becoming a bit more known. And I think sort of all these little things combined because you started to see started a few more black faces started to appear in the sport, just bit by bit. And a little later than that, A1 Grand Prix came along. 
But A1 Grand Prix was really interesting because it reached completely new markets. People that had never looked at motor racing before, but because it was nation versus nation, it started to open up. There was a huge spike in the number of um, Asian people, so Indians, Pakistanis, getting involved in motor racing. And you still see some of them knocking around in the sport who came up quite a long way. Uh, Narayan Kartikeyan, Karen Chandok, they were all coming up around that point as well. But there were lots of Brits at the same in the same sort of vein, and they're still around. Um, I was racing Formula V back then, and there was a chap who is just, you could do a podcast on this chap alone, um, called Ankit Love. Now, Ankit Love was, he was quite quick in the car, but my word, he crashed more than I did. Just <laughs> everything and everybody all of the time. He was driving for the rival team, I was driving for a team called AHS, and Ankit Love was driving for a team called GAC. And Gak had a faster car at that point, but AHS was a better team, I think. And he would just pile into all these cars. Every, you know, the red flag would come out and you'd see Ankit Love in the gravel track. Every single, <laughs> like every session, every track, it was Ankit Love. He went on to found the One Nation, One Love political party, ran for mayor of London, ran in some general elections. And I think is, and I, and I might have this completely wrong, but his Wikipedia entry is just, just look him up. He is an absolute <laughs> a, a character is what you'd have to call him. But he was one of these, you know, one of the, the, the first few dark faces on track with me that I'd experienced. And he was bloody quicker than me, which was no yeah. good. Um, but then it started to change. I mean, in that environment, actually being the non-white guy started to become an advantage in some ways mm -hmm. it, because it made you more marketable. So I started, people remembered you. I started to get more commercial interest from partners and stuff like that. So I had quite a lot of sponsorship. Um, also through the work I was doing, I was getting quite a lot of technical partnerships. So I didn't pay for my fuel, I didn't pay for my suspension, I didn't pay for my brakes. I didn't pay, you know, so I had a lot of free bits and bobs and I was getting branding on the car and people wanted me to race in that series because I was bringing attention on it. And that bizarrely led to a slight, and I know I'm going off on tangents all over the place. That's fine. But this led me back to A1 Grand Prix. <laughs> and this is a story that it's, it's one of the weirdest things. And it was, I'm still frustrated that it never came off. Um, I was approached, I got a strange phone call one day from a Nigerian guy. And he said, because I'm half Nigerian, I was posting on some Nigerian community forums and stuff online. And talking about my motor racing, basically trying to drum up some sponsorship from some London-based Nigerian businesses. And this guy, Ribi Adashokan is his name, phoned me up and said, I want to, I, I want to enter A1 Grand Prix with Team Nigeria. Will you drive for us? And I was like, not really sure I'm qualified to do that, to be honest. But then that, at that point, then you were looking at the drivers for Team Lebanon and the guy had done five Formula Renault races and a couple of Italian F3000 rounds and then was off in A1 Grand Prix. So I thought, well, I can't be worse than that. Um, <laughs> so genuinely, this A1 Grand Prix project was real. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a scam. Um, and they tried to put A1 Grand Prix uh, Team Nigeria together. And we met with Tony Texera, who was running the series at the time. The contracts all got signed. The money got paid by the Nigerians. They had funding from, I think Heineken was the major sponsor. And, and it was Heineken, it was Heineken's first foray into motor racing. So Heineken Nigeria were really big into it. 
Guinness Nigeria also wanted to be involved in the project, but we were like, how can you have Guinness and Heineken both on the car? But I think that, and it was a bizarre situation when I was sitting with the marketing manager for Guinness Nigeria and the market, marketing manager for Heineken Nigeria, discussing over which, which brand got to go on this, this race car. So we had the budget. It was the, the strangest thing. And this was the final season of A1 Grand Prix. And at that point, the series collapsed. The Nigerians lost their money and I never got to drive an A1 Grand Prix car. But uh, that was interesting because part of that project, it, we were doing quite a lot of outreach work with young black drivers and young ethnic minority drivers in London. And that really started to drum up some other young drivers. And, and by that, at that point, lots of young African drivers started to appear on the scene. And there was a real interest. And that made such a difference. But at the same time, with more black people, with more non-white people coming in, you did start to feel a little bit more there was some racism starting to appear. When I was the only guy there, I wasn't a threat, I was a novelty. But when mm. there were some other black drivers coming in, it was a little bit more unpleasant. Mm. And Lewis was starting to do quite well in, in his career. And I remember standing on the spectator bank at Castle Coombe. My engine had blown up, so I didn't get to start the race. And um, so I'd just gone to watch the race on the spectator bank and, you know, nothing better to do. Didn't really want to go home at that point. So I just watched the race I was supposed to be driving, which was a little bit depressing. But I could hear some people conversing in front of me. And I don't think this comment was directed at me. It might have been. But some people just, I just said, these people just go, well, niggas can't drive, can they? And I was like, mm, well, I'm kind of standing right here. I'm in earshot. Yeah. And admittedly, I couldn't drive <laughs> because my car had broken. <laughs> it, it was that was the attitude, and that. Then it wasn't um, a barbed comment. It was a comment just in passing in conversation, and that was common parlance, and that that was unpleasant. And you start to see a few. I started to see a bit more of stuff like that, and you know that's you know at that, at that point I was just starting you know working in Formula One as well, so it was a different. It was certainly a big change when I got to Formula One. Well, yeah, I was going to say, because I, I mean, uh, one of the reasons that we're even having to have this conversation in a sense, you know, Formula One is certainly not immune to it, um, is because of what's happening in the wider world. And then you, you look inwardly at the industry you work in, because a lot of people have, have made the point, while we've had this sort of Black Lives Matter movement is, you know, don't stay silent. What can I do? Otherwise, I'm being part of the problem. And I do look around the F1 Media Centre and the paddock, and there's just so little representation uh for for black people um and it doesn't seem to have changed either and i mean i've i've done it now for worked in the sport for about 10 years but you know every race for six and it's definitely not there's been no difference if anything i think you could say that it's even fewer times that there's a black person in the media center um i think i think at the moment at the moment i'm the only black person in the formula one media I think I can't think of anybody else. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, because there was there was Seth yeah. Harding, wasn't there? Who used to there come was to Seth South, Harding. He did he a couple of seasons and disappeared. There yeah. are some Indians. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of Indians uh, or Indian ethnicity people in the press room, but that's it. That yeah. is really it, and that, it's been that way since I came into Formula One. So it's been that way for you know near on twenty years now. And, and that's with Lewis being very successful for a long time as well. That's right. That's with Lewis being super successful for most of that period. There have been changes, though. I remember quite early in, I think it must have been, you're gonna, you'll have to look it up, but it's 
2007, maybe 2008, maybe 2009, just after Lewis had not, Lewis hadn't been in Formula One very long. Spanish Grand Prix at Catalonia. There were a group of fans in the grandstand. I mean, I saw them and they'd come blacked up with weird grey afro things on their heads. And they were wearing t-shirts saying Hamilton family. And they thought this was a great laugh. And all the people around them thought it was a great laugh. Yeah. And I was like, that's not funny. That's just really shit. That is that's funny. The... the target, wasn't he, as Alonso's teammate, or they'd that's been right, teammates yeah. and they'd had that rivalry and, and he was really not liked in Spain. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, you know, you know, he'd get booed and stuff and people just didn't like him. And yeah, that was difficult. And I remember I got back from that race and a friend had sent me a message on Twitter or something and, and said, that must be really difficult. It must be really horrible for you to work in. And I was like, actually, I've kind of got used to this, but I shouldn't really have to be getting used to this because I've been, I've been exposed to it for so long. It had kind of become, I'd kind of become almost immune to it. You know, I'd heard mm. so many comments, so much crap, and you sort of forget it. But then at that point, Lewis, you know, Lewis, because he became, he's a controversial person. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people out there who don't like Lewis Hamilton. And there's a question that I always come back to. When Jensen Button was winning his championships in 2009 and through that period, the British press absolutely loved Jensen Button. You know, they couldn't get enough Jensen. Lewis... It's fair to say they've been a lot cooler to Lewis. You know, they haven't loved Lewis Hamilton so much. He's always been a bit more divisive. You know, he's always been, I don't know, it always seems like the press are trying to do him down. While with Jensen, they were always trying to promote him. You know, Jensen was the golden boy, Lewis not so much. And the only thing I can come back to, because it can't be his on-track performance, which is potentially the best ever in history. You know, he's one of the finest racing drivers the world has ever produced. So it's nothing to do with that. So all I can come back to the fact is either because he's working class or because he's not white. And it's mm. probably a combination of those two things that the media do not like Lewis Hamilton. And, you know, it's clearly got to him over the years. You know, his attitude towards us in the press room and towards the wider media is very unlike every other driver in every other team. And I think that's why. You know, he doesn't trust the media because the media are always on his case. They're not trying to say, didn't Lewis do a great job? Even when he does do a great job, they're trying to criticise it. Yeah, and that, I think, was pretty nasty to see, and that hasn't changed. And I think that is a lockdown to the lack of diversity in the press room. And the, the, the thing that really stunned me was when I went to work in NASCAR for a bit. I was, uh, I was sitting in the press room at... Um, I think it was Atlanta actually, Motor Speedway. And there were black faces in the press room working, working journalists, TV presenters. There were Hispanic, there, there weren't any Indians, I don't think, and, but there were Japanese and Chinese as well. There was more diversity in the NASCAR press, press room than there was in the World Championship Formula One press room. That's not quite right, is it? No. I mean, do you think that's. Partly, I, mean, I also think this might be a, a reason we don't see as many um, black drivers coming through anymore, maybe partly influenced as well by what you said, that as actually that grew, then it became more difficult and racism became an issue. But is the cost generally of not only if you want to drive now, just being involved in motorsport, trying to get up through the ladder is, is heinously expensive. Uh, and 
as a wider reflection on society, if there's a oppression in wider society as a generalization, I am talking very generally, but then that's going to limit opportunities even more to some minorities. Uh, but then it's the same when you get into, you know, you've got to be able to travel everywhere. You need to get visas to go places. You need, you know, you need to have it's so expensive to cover Formula One as a career that you need to have a lot of work already lined up. And again, if there's a, a bigger issue, then that's surely going to lessen. I'm not saying this is you know, the case for everyone or that, that every publication is racist in some form or anything like that. But it's just if in society there's a wider issue, uh, then that's always going to have a, a slight impact on what's already a minority. Then that's going to lessen their opportunities even further. I think you're absolutely right. Um, Formula One and motor racing in Europe has become horrendously expensive. If, you, if I had to pay the prices and the costs of motor racing at a low level now, that exist now, compared to when I was doing it, I couldn't afford it. I could never have afforded it. The safety equipment, the licensing, the cars, the race entry fees, it's just so much more expensive than when I was doing it. And I was lucky enough to get up enough to a level that I was getting paid to drive at times. So that was pretty good. But I think for a young driver to get to that point now in, the, in Europe is extremely difficult. A little bit different in the States. America has lower cost base in terms of its motor racing, certainly because it's got much more prolific stock car racing, which is brilliant. Um, but also NASCAR itself, the governing body, because it's got this really awkward history with, you know, Confederate flags, Klan members, racism in the sport. It's seen as this really deep South racist sport. The, the governing body itself has actually been really progressive. And it launched a thing, and I forget when, called the Drive for Diversity, to find non-white drivers, to promote them, to give them the opportunity to work their way up through the sport. Now, Formula One's done nothing of that sort, and none of the governing bodies in the, in the different nations have done anything like that. They've never bothered. They don't care. They just want to make their money. And that's the governing bodies more than the Formula One itself. But NASCAR realised that there was an opportunity if it could get successful black drivers and Hispanic drivers and Asian drivers in the sport, then it would open up new markets for merchandise and spectators. So the most successful product of that process has been Bubba Wallace, who's now drive, you know, he's driving for the, for the Petty in the, in the, what the old Richard Petty car and yeah. he'll be racing this weekend. And he's pretty good. You know, he's, he's a top driver in NASCAR now. He's not the first black driver in NASCAR, and there's been plenty um, over the years. And in America, because of its really awkward history with race relations, is Indianapolis has a major problem still to this day. And they still and there is still racism so blatantly in America, and it does hold people back massively. And that's what a lot of this um, the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff are about now. It's not just the police. It's you know. They are really a subjugated class of people, black and non-white people in America, are really held back, horribly so. But Indianapolis Motor Speedway was segregated. Indiana, is a, Indiana, Indiana was one of the worst places for racism during you know, the, the civil rights fight. There were Klan rallies in the center of Indianapolis. There were drivers who were quicker than the white drivers who raced in something called the Golden Glory sweepstakes which ran at what we now call IRP, Indianapolis Raceway Park, rather than the big speedway. And these drivers raced the same cars, but they weren't allowed to race with the white drivers, even though they were quicker. They were as capable. Charlie Wiggins, PBS, PBS did a brilliant documentary and book about Charlie Wiggins called For Golden Glory, and it's a really, really great book. 
and, and series if you can find it. I'll show you if you can find it. Indianapolis Motor Speedway pays no, and the museum gives no recognition to those drivers. The fact that they were a real, there was a, there was a massive championship of them. There was a black IndyCar championship, essentially. It's compl almost completely erased from history if you go to Indianapolis, and they, they just ignore it. And there were some pictures of the, the track being built that uh, the, the Speedway put up on, on social media last year. And I commented, isn't it interesting how all the people building the track are black, but they weren't allowed to come and spectate at the race or drive in the race. You never mention, and they never mention that in any of their, any, anything essentially. So, and that, that, that shows you where the issue is. Even now, Indianapolis is holding, you know, is refusing to accept that history. And I think it really needs to step up on that one. Formula One, on the other hand, has always been a more global formula. So you do, you, you, there, have, there have always been non-white drivers. You've had plenty of Japanese drivers, you've had Indian drivers, uh, there's been Thai drivers, you know, Prince Biru was quite competitive at some points. You know, had drivers from across the world, Brazilians and stuff. But the black drivers, because motor racing hadn't really caught on in a big way in sub-Saharan Africa as a participation sport, you're not seeing that you're not seeing that drive from the majority black countries however it doesn't mean black people don't like motor racing that's one thing i've had thrown at me so many times black people don't like motor racing what utter bollocks it's complete and utter bollocks black people love motor racing and if you want to see how much they love motor racing go to barbados barbados has, has a population of think of uh, about two hundred thousand. It has two motor racing circuits, uh, its own rally championship, sprints and hill climbs, and at the big motor races at uh, uh, Bushy Park, you're going to see 20 to 30,000 spectators, more than 10% of the nation's population at one motor racing event. If you put that into context of any other country, you're looking at ridiculous attendance figures, and they love motor racing out there. There is racism in Barbados as well. There is a divide between the rich white people who go racing and the black people. They have two different motor clubs. It's improving there though, they're working on it. But we should probably, we, we shouldn't be too surprised to see at some point in the near future, a really talented young black driver coming out of the Caribbean. We should have seen a talented young black driver coming out of the States, but road racing isn't so big as oval racing in the States. So you'll see them probably going up the NASCAR track. Brazil, again, there's some problems of race. so you don't see those young black drivers coming up through the Brazilian system. It tends to be the richer white kids. And then why we haven't seen rich Nigerians come through. Nigeria is one of the biggest economies in the world. It has huge, and motor racing is hugely popular. There's a bunch of guys who fly to every Grand Prix. They're massive Lewis Hamilton fans. They fly to every single Grand Prix on the calendar. And there's a big group of Nigerians who just go from track to track to track because they love it. They're fans. They observe, you know, so there is the interest, but there is racism now holding people back. I, I bet, you know, if, if a young black guy came into a British racing team now, a Formula 3 team or a Formula Renault team or whatever, F4 team, the, the, the teams just see them as a walking wallet. They don't care about increasing participation. So all the barriers are there and there's no one easing that process despite, you know, now quite a few years being pushed back i've been a bit negative there are changes in the paddock though so as i walk through the formula one paddock now i see more black faces there's black engineers 
you know, there's, there's, there's schemes that bring on young talent. There's a girl who um, was a student, wrote a paper as part of a competition for Petronas and is now doing a lot of the oil and fuel work for Hamilton and Mercedes's Formula One cars. And you'll see her in a Mercedes team kit in the paddock every And she's a really nice girl. And lots and lots of others coming on. Lena Gade, um, who is now known for winning Le Mans repeatedly with Audi, she was actually my first race mechanic when I was racing Formula Vs. And that was her really? first job. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, creating, it's creating the opportunities for people to come into the sport, not just through driving, but also through technical education, through making that side of the sport open. And then that needs to go all the way through the sport. And we're not doing enough on that yet. But also the media. Right now, if you look at the motorsport media, it is such a monoculture. You still hear racist jokes in the press from now. I mean, you will hear them. I heard them in 2019. I heard them in 2020 at the two tests we've had so far and nothing else. I didn't go to Melbourne. Um, and, cool. you know, it doesn't just come from Brits. The Brits are actually not too bad on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will hear it from other nationalities. So the F1 press room, you've got pretty much every European nation represented and most of the rest of the world, apart from the black bits, essentially. And yeah, you hear comments. You will hear comments. Um, you know, one of them, what, what, there's one German journalist who calls me Tingle Tangle Bob because of my hair. Um, yeah. I don't mind it because I like the guy quite a lot, but it's, um, it shows that across the world, there's different attitudes and different things that we still need to challenge. And I think for Lewis Hamilton to say that nobody has spoken up, well, you ask me about Lewis Hamilton? Uh, yeah, you I was going to say. Remember the comment? Uh, yeah, I well, I saw your um, tweet actually after Lewis had said nobody had spoken up, and at the time, like Will Buxton, who we both know well, had already done some posts as well. Um, but I, I didn't feel like Lewis was talking to us as media so much or anything like that. I think he was aiming much, much higher, which maybe got lost. But he was looking for yeah, the big name drivers. Uh, the big stars, the owners of the sport, the top level to come out and go, actually, yeah, when we look around, Lewis is the only guy here. Why is that? Um, but in a sense, that's made Lewis the spokesperson on this topic for Formula One. Um, and uh, I think a lazy thing that I, I'm probably um, guilty of at times as well is, is then almost as a spokesperson for, for black people, but in general in sport almost or certainly within Formula One because he's the only driver but I don't think that's fully fair and that doesn't mean that everything he says is going to be reflected by everybody's own opinions and I'm assuming not always by yours either. No and I think I think that's it I mean one of the things Lewis said is that there's nobody in the industry is speaking up about you know the, the you know the case in in Minneapolis or what's actually going on now across the world and that wasn't true. Yeah, I follow lots of engineers and not well some other drivers from other series, lots of journalists, and you see, you know, some of them on their personal Facebook accounts and their personal Twitter accounts, which aren't the ones that we sort of retweet to each other so much. You can see, I mean, I know one senior race engineer from one of the teams has been so out. His, his Twitter feed is just a long list of stuff about it. So it's not right to say that nobody was saying anything, and a lot of people were saying stuff. But what Lewis was right to, to highlight is that none of the drivers had pointed anything out mm-hmm. because some of them, like Charles Leclerc, actually admitted that he was scared to say anything and didn't know what to say. Others very quickly responded. Others still haven't said a word, which is quite telling. Um, and some of the teams as well. 
you know, the teams really should be speaking up. Mercedes, how many black people buy Mercedes every year? Huge numbers. So surely you'd think Mercedes would want to be right at the front and centre saying we reject, you know, that what the, the police are doing in the States and we really should be striving for racial equality. Yeah, Mercedes is in a great position to argue that. McLaren should be saying the same sort of thing. The teams have been far too quiet on this and the fact that Lewis rattled them out of their slumber is a good thing. But sh they shouldn't have had to wait for that. Um, I'm, I think it would be interesting to see what the FIA is going to try and do because they've tried to do things before on improving the diversity in the sport. Lewis has raised this before. And there have been little schemes, but nothing's really come of it. Now, what I'd like to see the FIA do is create some sort of development fund. Because people don't want charity. What people need is the opportunity to be able to deliver, to be able to find their way into what is a very good industry. But it's a competitive industry. You can't just get, on, get in because of your skin colour. You've got to be good. Mm. But I don't think in the press room right now, the journalists in there are the best available. In fact, I'm pretty sure in many cases, they're not the best available. They're just the ones who are turning up and doing it. So there are opportunities in the media. So why are there no black journalists? You know, it's, uh, well, other than me, and I don't do every yeah. race, but, you know, it's, there is nothing to stop people. Well, there should be nothing to stop people coming in and doing that. And I think there are barriers put up there because the media owners are in a particular, you know, they're all white, middle-aged men, mostly. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure Will from Crash would comply with that, but um, I'll call him middle-aged, he's older than me. <laughs> um, I think he's older than me anyway. I'm going to say he's older than me. Um, but generally, it's white middle-aged men running these publications and they don't believe that black people are interested in the sport. Therefore, they don't try and make any effort to reach out to them. Why don't we have black women in the sport? You know, they, the, the sport has done a lot of work at bringing women into the sport, huge amounts of effort onto that, but nothing to increase its, its ethnic diversity at all. And, you know, why, why are the teams not doing scholarships in inner city areas? Because if you want to find young talent, that's where you go. The teams are not doing that. They should be running karting scholarships in urban areas. You know, that's where you're going to find, that's where Lewis came from. Lewis, came, Lewis Hamilton got into the sport because of sheer bloody-mindedness bloody mindedness of him and his dad. But they didn't have any money. And they, got, they were lucky to get spotted and came up that way. But unless it hadn't been, I think, for that kart track in Streatham that I started out, and Lewis would have never got anywhere. Because that company that owned that used to be one of his, early, one of his first sponsors. So you do need a few enlightened guys. And the reason that kart track was first built by Martin Howe was to was as a, almost like a council effort. It was to try and get young people in and get them involved in something different other than football and crime, which is a, you know, is a problem down there. And it created some real opportunities and people came up through the sport and Lewis was one of them. So it works. Let's see more of it. Yeah. Dare I say, and I, I you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but from everything you've said, and I've tried to do this thing where I've actually paid attention for once, because normally when I'm doing these interviews, I'm reading something or whatever. Um, no, I, I genuinely was thinking that the reflection of wider society, a lot of people saying, obviously, what's happening in America with police brutality uh, needs, you know, kind of leaving as just that. And why are people protesting over here when we don't have the same level? Or, you know, it's it's not an issue of racism. It's an issue of um, overhanded um, heavy-handed policing and it's 
clearly about more than that but even from just what we're talking about about where it affects our industry is it not showing that on so many different levels that um even if it's not active but the lack of opportunities to um, minorities and to black people is then kind of containing or maintaining the status quo and certainly within motorsport and formula one that status quo is hugely um like you say white male dominated so if media are not giving opportunities to black people then you're not getting them in the press room therefore they're not then passing that message on in an effective way to other black people to get them interested as fans as much uh, but where there are fans they're maybe not may being made to feel quite as welcomed because they don't have someone speaking to them properly then when it comes to the driver's side it's just because it's been made so so expensive that the way our society is the likelihood is the only people that can afford it are rich white kids and therefore if you're going to put a lot of money behind it because there are no role models for for black uh, kids that want to come racing they've or you know there's only lewis and it's suddenly it's a one in a billion chance that you're going to actually make it they're going you know we can't take that risk with that, those finances and they're all things that aren't actively trying to put roadblocks in the way but these are the sorts of roadblocks that maybe me myself when i think well, i don't because i honestly didn't don't feel that formula one is a racist sport uh, i i don't see active racism anywhere i do see that there's a lack of diversity um and but you know, I don't walk around and go, oh, you know, I don't like the sound of that, or or ever feel like I have to say something to someone about, oh, you know, you're out of line saying this or saying that. Um, similar to what you said, actually, Spain, 2010, I went as a fan, um, and I was at Turn One, and Lewis came around on the driver parade, and he got horrific abuse, racial abuse, monkey chanting, just I had so much. I'm not talking like one or two that you like. Oh, that's a bit odd. It was I, in the area I was with, I was uh, sitting. It was the majority. Um, now. Personally, I feel from having gone to a number of races, basically every race since start 2014, I, I haven't felt that atmosphere or I do think it's improved. Um, and that's because different countries are going to be at different stages of this. But the whole wider society picture is definitely having a heavy impact on then the lack of diversity we have within our sport. And that means when people then get behind these things, when Lewis is told, um, and Dara said, um, maybe you get similar, when someone says, stick to your job, and you, you can perfectly say, well, I can talk politics because I'm a politician as well, which <laughs> yeah. um, I, I've, I've left till this point, but um, Sam works for the Lib Dems and understands politics as well. But people that say that the sport and politics shouldn't mix, it's like, well, of course they mix. And not only that, we are a, ref a reflection of the wider society that we are in. And that just by continuing things as they are and not questioning why they're like that, then something's not going to change. And hopefully this is now a platform where, okay, no, this isn't about, you know, what we're talking about isn't about police brutality in the US um, or the oppression of black people in the US, but it is about how our society model in Europe, where F1 is basically homed, does not, uh, isn't conducive to giving opportunities to black people. I mean, one of the things that I've always felt you know, you mentioned that I'm involved in politics, which I am. Uh, one of the things I've always felt is I've never been a big fan of protest marches and protests. I don't really feel that, that I've, I've never really felt that they make much difference. I mean, you might, you might feel better about yourself to going and waving a placard outside Downing Street or walking towards the White House or wherever it is you are. But I, I've never really felt it until yeah, now. I've never really felt it made a difference. I mean, a great example was the, the, the anti-Brexit marches, which I was on. 
millions of us walking through the streets didn't make a blind bit of difference. You know, the government didn't listen. And generally politicians don't really pay too much attention to protest marches. Uh, and, it, and that's just the way of things because they just think they're irritants outside from a different party who wouldn't vote for you anyway. And that's the way politicians, and I'm not saying me, I'm saying politicians as a whole think like that. When, the, um, when Colin Kay started doing the take a knee in, in the States, it was, just a, it was just in the run up to the US Grand Prix at Austin. And I was very curious to see if Lewis Hamilton, who'd been very active tweeting about it, would have actually, during the US national anthem, with all the drivers lined up at the front of the starting grid, would Lewis Hamilton take the knee? And there was real speculation about whether he did or not. And I know he's spoken about that since in an interview. I always felt slightly disappointed that he didn't, but I understand his reasons for not doing so. But had he done that at that point, he would have been destroyed by the media for it. Mm. That's absolutely clear. The papers would have criticised him like hell. If he did it now, the same newspapers, the same journalists would congratulate him because the protests in America and... I don't like all the violence, but, and there isn't really an excuse for it, but when you're so oppressed, sometimes you have to take more action because walking with placards like they've done many, many times in the States doesn't work. So sometimes that direct action has become necessary. Sadly so, because it's now got the attention, not just of the media, it's got the attention of the entire population, not just of the USA, but for most of the world. And, that's what, and that is why it's reached into our world of Formula One and why we're discussing this. And now I think it's woken up so many people around the world to, you know, people talk about white privilege. Well, in Formula One, there couldn't be any less white privilege, you know, and it's really, and I think it's woken up Formula One and Hamilton's Instagram comments. And I do feel a bit sorry for Will Buxton because he phrased something a little bit badly, but the point he was making was actually fairly good because Lewis isn't alone. There are people like Will and people like me and other people in, in, in Formula One who completely agree with him. Formula One does need to take more action. And it's not the first time Hamilton's raised it. You know, I, he was talking about in F1 testing. I think this year he was highlighting it. He was talking to Toto, saying he's had a conversation with Toto Wolff saying, why am I the only one? I look around the factory, where are all the others? You know, so he's been pushing on this issue and he's absolutely right to do that. But I think what these protests have done is really created a narrative, a, a conversation that, you know, like we're having right now, that people are saying, well, what do we need to do? How do we improve this? And that is such a brilliant result for what's happened. So while idiots who are with orange skin, not naturally, who live on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, make comments about somebody looking down from heaven and saying it's a great job about unemployed, which is one of the most tasteless comments I've ever heard. The only good thing to come out of a man's death, a murder, a man's murder, and many men and women's murders in the US and in other countries, is that now we are having this conversation. Now we are talking about what we should have been talking about 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now we're trying to reach to actually see real racial equality in all, our, all parts of our lives, not just your friends, your family, but in your work, in your opportunities. And that's the real positive change that I really hope that comes globally, but really comes to our sport as well. And I think it will. I'm, I'm waiting to see what the FIA do about this. Yeah, I, I was about to say, um, you know, it's clear as well that yeah, we're, we're not sat in the UK going, well, we don't have these sorts of problems too. There might be different types of problems, but we're admitting, yeah, this is, a, as this conversation happens, 
that we've got issues here as well, just on maybe a different scale or in, in a different way. Um, but let's try and, and, and sort of like on a bit of a positive spin, because I know it sounds, it's, it sounds negative all the time, because in a sense it is. I mean, you know, we shouldn't be sat here talking about this. It, it should be that everyone has equal opportunities. Um, and I don't say that as just in a perfect world. I think, you know, that's just how the world should be. Uh, and I think that the vast majority do believe that. But even just you and I should be talking about much more entertaining and stupid things, um, which we which we will do in future as well. We're going to do we're definitely going to do another podcast at some point where we're going to talk uh, a little bit of tech, but mainly liveries because you know how much I love the colours. Um, no, you love the tech. <laughs> oh, I love the colouring in. <laughs> well, you keep sending me throughout this lockdown all of the colouring in like templates that every team has done in every motorsport. I'm trying to encourage you into what is a wonderful <laughs> element of the sport. I mean, the paint jobs of cars. It's the most, you know, red paint is faster. That's why Ferrari have won so many races. Uh, yeah, Silver exactly. creates late red. I mean, it's, it's, this, this is science fact. Well, it's, it's, and it's why uh, Mercedes then put a little bit of red on this year's car, uh, the Ineos logo. Well, yeah, the top but that balance could cause them so many problems, you know, oh, it's a darker red. Uh, well, so, so um, Sam is uh, a absolute tech guru and has some brilliant technical knowledge and he gets very frustrated that uh within the formula one media center there's a lot of us that don't report on the technical side so much and therefore assumes that means all we do is like to look at the pretty colors which for a lot of fans and for a lot of media i think it's the first thing you do notice isn't it is oh it's a different livery anyway that's definitely another another topic for another time because this has already um nearly hit the hour mark that uh, we've been talking but you know there's there's so much we could cover but let's finish on hopefully a positive note as you say, this has opened up a conversation. Um, and if I've had a, almost a frustration with it at times, uh, it's something that, again, I could certainly well be guilty of, a lot of people can be guilty of, um, regardless of race, is that it's easy to say, we must do better, we must be better, we must change things. But very few people have been able to say how. Do, one, can you see ways how we can change it? But, but two, if not, what are the end goals we're looking for um, or, or you'd like to see uh, in the near future that would that, that signify, yeah, this isn't just um, a disturbance that will then go away and be forgotten about. This will actually mark a point of uh, improvement and change. I mean, I mentioned it earlier. What I'd really like to see is some of the big brands, some of the big teams in the sport working with the FIA to bring the sport to more urban areas, to more population centres. They don't just take it to where there's Cartier shops and, and you know, and Rolls-Royce dealerships. Take it to where people live. Go to go to the Banlieu in Paris. You know, go to South Central LA. Go to the Bronx. Go to Crystal Palace. You know, go to these places where there's lots of people who might not have thought about motor racing as something to watch, something to enjoy, or something to participate in. Create kart tracks. They don't cost that much. Make them electric. It's really it's it's a brilliant eco-friendly way to enjoy you know an afternoon electric karting. You know, it's okay. The weight distribution's all off. I could talk all about that all day, but it, that's something the FIA could really invest in, and it would be a really beneficial investment to the sport to create lots of little kart tracks, to create lots of those little opportunities. Get then local organ, sporting organisations in, get them to go to get get drivers. You know, not rich ones, not ones perhaps with the biggest shiniest car. Get them to go to schools and do a show and tell with their competition car. Let the kids see motor racing. Let them experience it. One of the things I did, and I'm still very proud of, is um, I was really quite instrumental in bringing motor racing or motorsport back to Crystal Palace onto the circuit, getting the sprints and hill climbs up going again. And we got them going, I think, I forget what year I, re you know, I was involved in restarting them there. But one of the rules that we put in with the local authority and the local residents is that you're not allowed any 
hospitality units in the paddock. They're banned. You're not allowed to fence your car off. That's not allowed either. If a child asks to sit in your car and have their picture taken, you are obliged to say yes. As long as you know, they haven't got ice cream all over their hands or whatever, but <laughs> you know, you're obliged to look. And the amount of kids that came through, I was driving a Lotus that first year. Um, and the amount of kids that came through and wanted their picture taken in, in my Lotus and have their, yeah. And those kids have gone away. And after that, they treasured that moment and families take, you know, it's a family day out that creates that little event where most of the competitors have entered for 50, 60, hundred quid, you know, with, with whatever car they had available. That's really promoting the sport in a brilliant way. That's where it starts. It doesn't start by some grand gesture. I mean, what can Lewis do himself? He's doing everything he can, actually. And everyone says, oh, you're a multimillionaire, you should be throwing money at this. No, Lewis has done what he needs to do. Now it's on the sponsor, it's on Mercedes, it's on Petronas, it's on the, the MSA or the Motorsport UK, it's on the FIA, it's on NASCAR, it's on the circuits, it's on all of those guys to, you know, carry on what Jonathan Palmer was talking to me about 25, 30 years ago. You know, it's, it's that's what needs to carry on that's what i hope this brings in and i think it might and i hope the fia listen to this and 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 take that on board well in case they are then we'll let them at this point uh, go and do something about it um <laughs> yeah exactly because <laughs> because we have chatted away for an hour but um uh, sam it's been um fascinating honestly to uh, just to, to hear your side of it because partly as well it's it's not a case of go and find someone who tells you i was massively oppressed the whole time or or uh, go and find someone who says that racism isn't, isn't an issue. I wanted uh, your real account of how things were for you and feel like I got it because even when I thought you were going to say, yeah, it was really difficult at certain times, you're like, nope, never noticed. So um, thank you for being uh, honest and, I mean, as if you ever aren't. And uh, we'll definitely get onto the serious stuff of colouring in on the next one. Um, and for everyone listening, thank you very much for uh, putting up, up with the two of us talking for a whole hour. Uh, apologies for it being that long but these are topics that you can't really shortcut so there's obviously way more we can talk about but hopefully now uh, more we can do as well uh, within our little industry to try and make things a little bit better so uh, thanks very much for listening Sam thank you very much for your time and for anyone who didn't enjoy that don't worry it's all over now Sports Social Podcast Network